Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi and welcome to Eating Fried Chicken, the show bonus episode. Joining me is Saab Jahal, clinical psychologist. Kia ora, James. Kia ora, I want to talk to you about being institutionalized because I think it's something that we, we still hear. And for me, I get a scene from a film, and I think a lot of the people do. That's, that's our understanding of being institutionalized. You know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest or girl interrupted if you're a little bit younger. But what actually happens yeah, when I, someone's being institutionalized. I get exactly the same sort of pictures when I hear that language. And I think it is language that, for many people who are perhaps a little bit older, still echoes with truth. But mm-hmm. for a lot of people, they kind of wonder what that means. And I think it echoes back to a time when, if you were seriously mentally ill, mm-hmm. then you would perhaps be... Um, looked after in an institution, which would be mm. kind of like a bricks-and-mortar kind of like old-style hospital where the responsibility of the medical care would be not just to treat you, but to offer you shelter and protection as mm. well. So it's a whole sort of wraparound care. But the, the idea of institutionalization is that actually it can be quite disabling and disempowering and could end up being almost like a lifelong treatment for people because they don't have any other life skills mm. to um, negotiate being out in the world again afterwards. And Well, you know, again, I think we, we see films about these kind of things. And first of all, the buildings look terrifying, uh, you know, and if it's, if it's not a film based there uh, in, in historically, it's normally a film based there when it's closed and there's now ghosts and things living in the building. <laughs> Do you think that adds to a, to a stigma around being institutionalised? Yeah, I think so. And I think that um, carrying that with you, it kind of carries uh, a label perhaps um, where you see yourself as being very different from the rest of society. Um, you can um, be perceived of by other people if you say that you've been in an institution or you were institutionalised as perhaps being very different from their experience of what life is like. And it carries all that stuff around, you know, perhaps being locked up for the protection of other people as well as of yourself uh, from society and, and perhaps harming yourself as well. Do you think, uh, you know, with societal ideas of you know, harden up, or, you know, you've got to be tough, you know, push on through. Do we associate words like failure, do you think, with being institutionalized? Like, if you, if you end up in there, there's this idea that, oh, you haven't been able to handle society. Yeah. And I think it's tied up with um, an old-fashioned term, again, of this idea of mental breakdown. Yeah. Which kind of almost predates World War I and World War II in terms of that's how 
limited our thinking was in terms of people going uh, through mental health difficulties or men- having mental health problems is that we assumed that there was some kind of mental breakdown or nervous breakdown, which meant that they weren't able to function in everyday life. And often it could come on quite suddenly and it would end up in this only option that they had available at that time. You know, this idea or the word of asylum mm. was supposed to be protection and shelter mm. so that people could recover. But unfortunately, they ended up becoming essentially bins where they could put people who they didn't know how to, to deal with. But that changed a little bit. You know, as we, as we went through World War One and World War Two, and we had returning soldiers from combat who were dealing with all the difficulties and, and what they'd seen and experienced through going through war, is actually the language then started to change towards psychological distress. Right. And so we started to get a lot more nuanced around how we thought about what were we called up until that point mental breakdowns. Because again, when we think of mental breakdowns, I think we still think of movie scenes. You know, or or TV. I mean, you know, we talk about asylums. Arguably the most famous uh, asylum in current pop culture is Arkham Asylum. You know, we think Batman, we think the Joker films. You know, there's still those ideas of very dramatic, very big, very loud Mm. breakdowns. Mm. But is that actually what's, what's happening when a mental breakdown occurs? Well, I think that one of the things that we've learned is that language is really, really important. Mm. So rather than just kind of naming the place or naming the general experience, we can now get very specific around, you know, well, what is the actual symptom that people are experiencing? Is it things like sleeping difficulties, like insomnia? Is it loss of energy? Is it um, suicidal thoughts? You know, all these different things then help us to figure out what is the best way to help people Mm. rather than just this big catch-all where essentially we just partition them from the rest of society because they were just seen as too difficult. And what are the ways in which we can ourselves, who um, are not involved in this, um, look to address the way in which we view asylums and breakdowns? Well, I think one of the things that we can do is to see that actually we're all on a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. And our symptoms, our experience of life differs on a day-to-day basis. Some days we can feel like it's a real struggle Mm -hmm. and other days we can feel like we're on top of things. At least, you know, as, as, as modern life is, it changes from moment to moment, changes from day to day. And it's when the balance changes. So we're having, you know, considerably more bad days than we are having good days. And we feel like it's getting in the way of actually living our lives. It feels like we can't work or it feels like we can't fulfill our parenting responsibilities. These then become danger signs that perhaps we need to have help. Mm. And the help that is offered now and the help that is available is far more targeted towards these specific difficulties now rather than this kind of catch-all mental breakdown. So I think one of the things that we also understand is that it's not just the mental side of life, it's the the whole experience of living, and that includes your physical life as well. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, because that's another aspect I wanted to talk about was I remember when I was in my my late teens, uh, I took up (laughs) ninjutsu, uh, because there was a dojo near my house in Lower Hut. I was the ninja of the hut. <laughs> and uh, that was actually really helpful for me because 
Well, to be honest, I'm not really sure why. And I was wondering if maybe you could help me understand that. And that I, it was something really nice about you know, the rhythm of going to classes, the, the discipline of following instructions, but also just the primal thing of punching air and going, and you know, forcefully expelling, it felt like, the, the emotions I had pent up. Is, is, that, is that part of why sometimes you know, we, we, we look at things like martial arts as being able to help? Yeah, I, and I think... It's really interesting what you say in terms of the, the experience of being in your body, mm. right? So you talked about the structure, somewhere where you could go regularly, and, and martial arts certainly offers a lot of structure in terms of how it is that you do things, repetitive movements, the expellation, the exaltation, you know, the, the release of energy and the management of energy, right? Mm. So often martial arts is used as a way perhaps of um, helping boys and it tends to be young boys not exclusively so that perhaps have a lot of um, aggressive or angry feelings Mm. and a way of being able to make sense of those and use them more productively and it's interesting because it seems to have a paradoxical effect in that you would expect perhaps more aggression but actually the way that people are um, experiencing the structure and the routine and the meaning of their bodily movements means that they can inhabit and experience those emotions in their bodies in a way that's structured and helps them to gain more control rather than it being something that feels like it's taking over their bodies. So I think it's a really interesting way that is beneficial for a lot of people because it does offer that structure and it does offer that relationship with the body and emotions that is quite different when it happens in an unregulated way. I think control is a really interesting word you used there because I know other people um, I've spoken to similar experiences have gone through something like dance. Um, and I know people who've uh, gone to uh, the gym, but they've, like, I'm talking about people who've got a personal trainer and really learn because they want to control what their body can do. Is there a, is there a, a mental health benefit to having more control over your body? I think it's partly the control of your body, but partly learning to inhabit and also, right. also okay. experience the sensations of your body. Right? Mm. There's this part of our brain which is called the default, default mode network, which is this kind of like your sense of me all the time. And that's working all the time. And if we're not careful, it can get us into trouble. It can be the stuff that keeps you awake at night with the worries of the mm. thing that you may have to do later on or what do people think about me if you're, if you're really kind of that way inclined of looking at the world and how Absolutely you Absolutely that right? way inclined. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what, what being in your body then does is that it enables you to experience all the stuff that's not only going on in your body but as you start to master it and use your body in different ways. So for me, it was running. Okay? Right. So once I got past the kind of like the initial learning to run and Mm. feeling puffed and all the rest of it, you get to the point where you're actually sort of like gliding uh, across the ground and you're feeling the sensation, you're seeing the sights, you're hearing the wind and you're feeling the sun beating on your skin. And all of that stuff means that you're not thinking about all the stuff that's troubling you. So being in your body, I think it's not just about the control of, of, of like what your arms and legs are doing, mm. but it's all the uh, benefits that you get from being the sensing animals and beings that we actually are, right. not just caught up in our heads the whole time, but learning that actually we are heads that live in our bodies. And for our listeners who might not uh, be able to Uh, experience all the things that we're talking about with their bodies. It's really about focusing on being in 
the body yeah, absolutely. than what you do with the body. Absolutely. It's the sensations that your body can unlock for you. And if you have limited means of that, and often we find that um, people tell us that because they have limited ways of sensing in some parts of their body, actually they have acute ways of sensing that other people who are differently abled aren't able to experience. So everybody's journey will be different in their own bodies that they, are, they, they have at that period of time. And it's an interesting issue around aging as well, right? Mm. As our bodies change as we get older, the oh, experience yeah. of being in that body changes too. And that also has an impact upon our sense of self and mental well-being as well, which has to change as we get older. Which is often where that little gallows humour of getting older comes in, you know. So for anyone who's, once you've passed 30 and you start making noises as soon as you sit up, <laughs> you know, getting off the chair becomes a small composition and grunts and noises. I dread to think the noises that I'm making now then when I try and get up. Oh, we all, we all do, mate. We all do. It's, it's part of the journey. Um, clinical psychologist, Saab Jaha, thank you very much for joining me in the shower again. Thank you, James. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.